Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Welcome. My name is Daniel Stewart. I'm from the ANU College of Law, and it's my very great pleasure to welcome you here tonight. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging and celebrating the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Um, thank you for coming along um, on this rather sort of cold and blowy Canberra evening, although, as we are saying to some visitors, this afternoon, it's unseasonably warm here still in Canberra. Um, thank you to the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, and Timothy Pilgrim is here this evening um, for bringing Professor Kanatachi to the ANU. Um, well, it's never been a more exciting time to talk about privacy. Um, this is, of course, Privacy Awareness Week, um, where we sort of, throughout the, the local region, we think about uh, privacy and the impact that it has um, at a time where the ubiquity of the internet and development of virtual spaces, where we're concerned about sort of global data mining and uh, metadata definitions and, and other issues in relation to privacy, it's very useful, I think, to be reminded that our contemporary conceptions of privacy have a very long and distinguished history, which we can learn a lot from. And we're very fortunate tonight to have a chance to, to sort of think about and learn more about some of that history and the way in which it affects our contemporary notions of privacy. Um, so the, the rise of privacy um, as an as a issue, as a global issue, um, resulted in, in 2015, the United Nations Human Rights Council responded to the challenges confronted by privacy with the appointment of the first rapporteur for privacy, Professor Joseph Kanatachi. Um, Professor Kanatachi is the head of the Department of Information Policy and Governance at the Faculty of Media and Knowledge Sciences at the University of Malta. He also holds the Chair of Univer European Information Policy and Technology Law within the Faculty of Law at the University of Groningen, where he co-founded the STP, or STEP, research group. He's written many books and articles on data protection law, liability for expert systems, legal aspects of medical informatics, copywriting computer software and co-authored various papers and textbook chapters on self-regulation in the internet, the EU constitution and data protection, online dispute resolution, data retention and police data. His latest book, The Individual and Privacy, was published by Ashgate in 2015. So as that sort of range of areas of, of expertise might suggest, um, he has received a number of um, uh, honours and awards in recognition of his contribution in 2002. He was decorated by the Republic of France and elevated to, I think it's uh, translated in English, the Office of the Academic Palms. It sounds much more impressive in French. Um, his pioneering work in the development of technology law and especially privacy law, privacy law was cited as one of the main reasons for his being made the recipient of such an honour, as was his contribution to the development of Euro European information policy. 
Professor Kanatachi's visit coincides, as I mentioned, with Privacy Awareness Week, an annual initiative of the Asia-Pacific Privacy Authorities Forum, held every year at around about this time, um, to promote and raise awareness for privacy issues and the importance of protecting personal information. Um, and so with us tonight um, to discuss um, in particular sort of in, uh, the rights of uh, Indigenous Australians and, and privacy in his talk, White Man Got No Dreaming or Got No Privacy or Both, please uh, can you welcome Professor Joe Kanatachi. Good evening, everybody. It's really a pleasure to be here. And by, by the end of this uh, talk, I hope you'll understand even more why it's a pleasure for me to be here. Because one of, the, one of my intentions today is that this be also partially a tribute to somebody who is so happily acknowledged in this university, Bill Stanner. Um, the, and one of the things that I'm going to take you on, uh, this, what I suspect would be a rather meandering journey this evening, is also to let you have an insight into how much I personally have been influenced by the work of this great Australian. And um, one of the things that uh, you, you have to perhaps uh, understand is how much um, Bill Stanner, somebody whom I never met, but whose works I've read extensively, how much he influenced me, how much he was, must have been behind my shoulder in some of my fieldwork. But um, let me, before we get to Stanner's works and some of the insights, which I will share um, more at the end of this talk, let me talk about somebody a bit more contemporary. Okay, uh, hands up for those who recognize this gentleman. Ah, we have somebody at the back. Would you like to tell everybody else sir, who, who that is? Okay, if, since you don't have a mic, I, I'll, I'll do that myself, don't worry. So that's Vint Cerf, ladies and gentlemen. And Vint Cerf is reputed to be one of the fathers of the internet. And uh, um, if, you'll, if you will uh, Google, Kanatachi and Vint Cerf, you'll probably find out some reference to the fact that I was supposed to have called him dumb. Well, to be precise, to be precise, I said I couldn't understand how such an intelligent man could say such a dumb thing. And this is what he said. Um, privacy may actually be an an anomaly. Privacy is a construct of the modern industrial age. In the past, his thinking goes, people lived in small self-contained villages where pretty much everybody knew who was dating the baker's daughter and what the sheriff had for lunch. It is only when populations started migrating en masse to cities that anonymity emerged as a byproduct of urbanization. And I mean, especially when I look at the sentence, privacy may actually be an, an anomaly, it's, it's there where I have to say, and I've met Vincerf after this, but this is pure, undiluted rubbish. 
I don't know the way you would call it in polite Australian, but in my case, I have no more respectful terms for that. And clearly, Vincef was saying that because he's never read Bill, Bill Stanner. Clearly, normally, the kind of work which I, what pays the rent, of course, is not um, indigenous studies in my case, or privacy in indigenous populations. It's actually electronics, um, as you've gathered, if there's a chip in it, my research groups take an, an interest in it, and we study it, and we're trying to understand the implications, especially for privacy. So um, if I were to move on from my normal subjects, you can, of course, go to some of the websites we have. At this moment in time, I'm, I'm running about 30, 35 million euro worth of um, EU-funded research projects, all of which are somehow connected with privacy and surveillance and uh, technology. But the, the point that some of them deal with smart surveillance, others deal with other forms of surveillance. Um, anybody who's interested, just leave me a card and I'd be very happy to send you links to some of the works that we're doing. But one of the questions that I've been um, asking is in relation to privacy. I've kept about, I'm saying this especially to the three, four people in the audience who were at the presentation I gave in uh, Sydney yesterday. And uh, um, when I asked them what, what should be in common, should there be some, something in common between what I said yesterday, what I said today, uh, part of the, part of the um, feedback that I got related to some of the concepts that I was advancing yesterday about Australia still being the land of the fair go. Because one of the points I was making yesterday is, and I'm going to snip back a minute to this so that you don't read the next slide. Um, because what I'd like you to do is ask yourselves why privacy is important, right? And I keep going back to people and asking them, but ask yourself the question, why privacy? Why is it important? And most importantly, is privacy something that you value because it's an end in itself or because it is a means to an end? And I put it to you that while, of course, privacy is a standalone right and a very important one, one which has a constitutional level in most countries around the world. At the same time, privacy is very much also an enabling right. And it exists because there is something which in some countries is recognized as being a an overarching fundamental right, and that is the right to free and hinder development of one's personality. In fact, <clears throat> what I'm doing on this slide is I'm trying to show how, together with other fundamental rights, and I have here the freedom of expression, the freedom to receive and impart information, the freedom of access to publicly held information, you must remember, of course, that Timothy Pilgrim here, the, um, the information commissioner, 
has actually got at least two hats. One is that for privacy, but the other is that for freedom of access to publicly held information. And then, of course, there's privacy, right? And privacy is very much the, the bubble within which one is able to develop one's personality away from the public eye. And it's important for many reasons. I don't have the time to uh, go through all the reasons why privacy is important to the development of one's personality. But think about a few things like sexuality, like discovering one's own um, identity, one's own sexual identity, experimenting with it, um, the developing... Uh, my, my sister um, once quoted to me, I'm sure she didn't make it up, but this was in the days before digital photography and said, you know, love is like a photograph, it develops in the dark. I don't know about that, but certainly technology has moved on from there. And um, in, in, in one of the blogs that I published last week, um, with the written and informed consent of all three of my daughters, I actually um, used them and asked uh, their permission to explain one of the dimensions of privacy. And I got their express permission to uh, talk about the fact that, yes, their boyfriends were allowed to sleep over, that they were allowed to have private spaces within which they could, um, they could examine and uh, take forward their own personal uh, identities. But let me quickly zip back to today, before we then go back in time and go forth in time in, in this journey that I've tried to devise for us today. Um, hands up, all those of you who are carrying a smartphone. Yeah, perhaps I should rephrase that. Does, is anybody not carrying a smartphone? One, two, three, four, five. Okay. That's pretty powerful, for the course. Um, because, okay, hands up anybody who's not on Facebook. Ooh, now leave the average. Okay. Um, hand, hands up anybody who's not on any kind of social media. A minority within a minority. And that's interesting. Because... There's nothing wrong with being on social media. Um, it's a matter of choice. It's a matter of autonomous personal choice. But it's very interesting to see how we are using the media. And in fact, that figure, which comes from uh, August of last year, and I'm going to go back on the 27th of August um, to see how many people, but I was talking to Facebook a couple of weeks ago, and they told me they're now at 1.3 billion people using Facebook. And when I, I did bring up eventually uh, the fact that my daughters have reliably informed me that, Dad, it's no longer cool to be on Facebook. But hey, they weren't too happy about that. Um, but the point too is what we're doing with our mobile phones. That Nearly everyone now is using Facebook on their phones and 90% on mobile. Indeed, 
I won't have time to tell you about it today, but one of my enduring interests is to see how mobile phones or mobile phone technology can be used to help indigenous peoples bridge a number of gaps, not only in Australia, but also outside Australia. And there's some actually some very interesting work which is being carried out in Australia, which you might want to learn about. Um, going quickly from text to video, think about it too. This is why I asked um, how many people are carrying a smartphone, because a smartphone is so much a piece of converging technologies. Remember, you have at least three or four technologies coming together here, right? You have photography, you have the internet, you have computing, you have GPS and geolocation, and yes, every so often you might even want to make a phone call. But in fact, um, what I'm showing here is about is, is, is the importance of video. Snapchat could never have grown to six billion daily video views unless we had video capability on our smartphones. And another thing which is very topical at this moment in time, and I put this down from CNET News, is in the world of big data, privacy invasion is the business model. And I'm not saying this is correct. I'm not disagreeing with it either. I'm just referring you to some of the references that we may have here today. But especially important is this quote from Peter Swire, the golden age of surveillance, right? Because most people in the room were not using a smartphone 10 or 20 years ago. A, they didn't exist. And B, I dare say that more than half of the people in the room were not using the internet 20 years ago. A few of us were, perhaps those of us in my age, but I'm rapidly advancing into the oldest segment in the auditorium. Um, so while I'm young, I've been younger. Um, but the point I'm making here is the amount of metadata that we are creating, right? If you were to ask people, and we do this in as scientifically rigorous a manner as possible, if you were to ask people, so do you know exactly what you're putting out there on Facebook and Twitter and so on and so forth? Some people remember, some people don't. But most people are not aware of the huge amount of metadata that they generate every minute of every day. the vast amount of electronic fingerprints and footprints that they leave around the internet. Um, yes, this is one of the slides in common with yesterday, which I'd like to take you back 50 years now to Solzhenitsyn and the preoccupation in pre-computing Soviet Russia. Um, and especially for the people at the back, I'll read this out of you. Uh, if, like myself, your eyesight is not exactly 2020. So, if only I could write like this. As every man goes through life, he fills in a number of forms for the record, each containing a number of questions. There are thus hundreds of little threads radiating from every man, millions of threads in all. If these threads were suddenly to become visible, the whole sky would look like a spider's web.
And if they materialized like rubber bands, buses and trams, and even people would lose the ability to move. And the wind would be unable to carry torn up newspapers or autumn leaves along the streets of the city. Now, of course, in today's age, with so much stuff happening, happening electronically, there is less of a risk of torn up newspapers being carried along. But the leaves hopefully will be there if we haven't killed all the trees by then. But we're heading towards smart cities, right? And I put it to you that if you think of what happens when you walk through a smart city, and I don't know how many of you have actually done so, but I have, and those cities in Europe and other places which are going smart mean that it's literally every step you make, every breath you take, because you have sensors all over the place, you leave home, you take your phone out, you go bleep when you get onto the bus or onto the tram. You get off, you stop at the post office, you go bleep because you bought an envelope. You walk out, you step into the cafe, you go bleep with your phone. You're not taking anything else out except your phone. And you're not even opening your phone, you're using an FC to read along. You get to the office, and you get the picture. I don't need to go on. And literally remember what's lying behind that in a smart city. Because your phone company is linked to the bank, is linked to the utilities company, is linked to the bus company, is linked to the, um, all the point-of-sale points you've been along. And just try to think of what would happen if somebody could put all of that together. What kind of a profile could they build around you? And this is precisely of something that's happened over the past 20 years. The now most of us are always online. And whether we're inside, we're online. Whether we're outside, we're online. We're told that other people or beings could be online. I'm a reporter. I haven't made this myself, you know. I just picked it up off the internet, like I do most of the images you see here. No, today, actually, that's not true. Um, I've got several images which I've shot myself, and you'll be able to see those in a minute. Um, but, of course, this is why I liked this cartoon. Um, there is now this preoccupation growingly. You know, Daniel was talking about it first. Um, the fact that we've never been more aware than today. And of course, also thanks to Privacy Awareness Week organized by the Commissioner's Office, that a lot of people are afraid now that once it's online, it's virtually impossible to scrub out. And the data on you will follow you around for life. These are some of the preoccupations that we're seeing. Um, when I'll end this part of the talk by talking a bit about the good life and risks that we have for the good life. You know? Because, you know, when, when you talk to Australians about Australia, and when you talk to the perceptions of non-Australians about Australia, 
And I've met at least two or three people this afternoon alone who came from outside Australia to live in Australia. And what do they talk about? The good life, right? But what is the good life costing us, right? What does it look like? And what do we have when it comes to risk and risk management? And here I'm quoting Richard Branson. Um, I don't often quote him. And in fact, this is the only time, this is the only time in my life that I'm quoting Richard Branson. Um, perhaps he has said other things worth quoting, but hey, this is the one that I'm looking at. Every risk is worth taking as long as it's for a good cause and contributes to a good life. Now, everybody's perception of what a good life is or maybe may differ. But in fact, let's think about privacy, autonomy, and freedom. And uh, um, I've dug out, in preparation for this series of talks, this quote from 1983. So I just wanted to convey to you that this is not exactly new thinking, but perhaps it's worth looking at again. In a society where modern information technology is developing fast, Many others may be able to find out how we act. And that in turn, and obviously please think of all the electronic fingerprints and footprints, and that in turn may reduce our freedom to act as we please. Because once others discover how we act, they may think that it is in their interest, or in the interest of society, or even in our own interest, to dissuade us, discourage us, or even stopping us from doing what we want to do and seek to manipulate us to do what they want to do. And when I was reading that about, well, not about precisely 30 years ago, um, I wrote something and I was joking with somebody yesterday that I still can't bring myself to disagree with myself after 30 years. Um, and what I said was that shorn of the cloak of privacy that protects him, an individual becomes transparent and therefore manipulable. And a manipulable individual as, is at the mercy of those who control the information held about him. And his freedom, which is often relative at best, shrinks in direct proportion to the extent of the nature of the options and alternatives which are left open to him by those who control the information. And this is why, of course, uh, for the past 30 years, I have been looking at this particular dimension of privacy and information. And remember, if you'll permit me to be anecdotal for two minutes, remember that I come from the Europe where we had a war. We had a war, not one war, several wars too many to count. And when I was a student, and when I was first practicing, both as a technologist and as a lawyer, and the first time that I was in the Committee of Experts on Data Protection of the Council of Europe, we had the Berlin Wall dividing Europe. And Daniel earlier was, this afternoon was asking me, so Joe, what are the differences you see between cultures? Try and go to Eastern Europe. Try and speak to the Romanians, the East Germans, and talk to them about privacy. Talk to them about the secret services. Why do you think Angela Merkel may have a certain angle on this? 
Is it only because she found out that some friends were actually spying on her? Or is it because also she was brought up in East Germany, where the secret services had files of more than 6 million out of 17 million inhabitants? I could go on. I'm fortunate enough to have been part of the Council of Europe when we went from 19 countries then, 21 properly, but a couple didn't attend that frequently, to 47 where we are today. And we have made so many leaps and bounds, not in my lifetime, but in my career, in my professional lifetime, half my lifetime, that you come to value privacy much more as you value other things in life. Because the quality of life, we're talking about the good life, and I was relating to the concept of a good life and the risks that we take. Um, this is why I was talking about the free development of personality. Autonomy is one of the things we value, and normally also self-determination is part of our concept of autonomy. And in political science we talk about, and even in common discourse, we talk about the right to political self-determination. And in 1983, 33 years ago, the Germans came up with the concept of informational self-determination. And one of the things that I'm trying to encourage people to look at in the case of smart cities is, should we have information self-determination as a design criteria for smart cities? Or is each and every one of us going to be picked up by a sensor as every step we take to a city? And I've been talking about the social contract, and we don't need to go back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the social contract in order, however, to discuss whether the last 10 years of the internet have already changed the social contract. Um, and the way that, because of technology development, private corporations have been taking advantage of um, the way that the internet works in order to create new ways of making money without discussing this necessarily, or having this as a matter of policy discussion. And the same for governments. How often do governments come along and discuss the policies they have, especially when it comes to information gathering and surveillance? When they get caught out, sometimes, yes. When the information commissioner in a country or another goes along and prods them along, when a case comes up, but more than that, are they guilty of ever volunteering too much information to the citizens who vote them into being? Let's go back for a minute and start drawing some strings together and start trying to understand uh, some of the insights that we can obtain from the oldest continuously existing culture on the planet. In my office, in one of my offices actually, but in my office in, in Malta, this is the map that hangs on the wall. And a lot of people ask me about it. So I bought one of these large maps next to my desk, so every so often I can turn around and look at all the lands of 
the original peoples who inhabited this land until 1788 and who are still here, I should be emphasizing that I'm speaking very much of them in the past and in the present, but especially in the present and in the future. Because, as I will be saying, there are many things which can be learned from the complex information ethics developed by the Aboriginal peoples of this country. Um, and yes, well, when I've been doing some field work here myself, um, yes, of course, uh, there are occupational hazards, and some of these are different in other parts of the world. I should tell you that the sign says that a snake kit is attached to the back of the sign. It's a good thing that there were no snakes which bit me that day because there was no snake kit. But hey, I'm still alive to tell the tale. Um, but in fact, what we're looking here actually is are examples of Aboriginal architecture which go back 2,000, 3,000 years, and which are very interesting. This work I was carrying out in the state of Victoria. Um, and later on, I'll be giving references to an excellent book where, where that comes from. To try to understand that if anybody likes the, the way that I've organized the last book that, that Daniel was talking about, The Individual and Privacy, it's because I've been hugely influenced by Stanner's work on space in Aboriginal society. Um, and in fact, however, let me talk about the first dimension for now. Let me talk about time, right? Because that book, um, I've divided into the three dimensions of time, place, and space. And in time, if we look around, right, if we look around the architecture of space in various civilizations, here actually this is in Syria, and if we look at Aleppo, unfortunately this is what it looks like today, not when I was there. Um, if we look at Damascus, I'm afraid the, it's no longer, the souk is no longer in such pristine condition if we look at the way that people lived in spaces, in different spaces over the centuries, we can perhaps understand better the way that they had privacy or privacy-related behavior in those spaces. And since we're in a university, I could be forgiven to talk a bit about methodology. Um, because Philip Leith, um, who is a sociologist originally by training but ended up for the last 30 years in a faculty of law, it happens, as you know, um, said we do need to study privacy, but with a more developed and investigative approach. The approach which presumes that personal control of information is the ultimate goal, and I'm not saying he's right or wrong, but what I'm saying is interesting in methodology, is ideological rather than academic, where the presumptions and assumptions are often untested, unstated, and involve controversial moral claims which are suggested to be commonly held. 
And um, Philip's a good friend of mine, retired last year. But I'm introducing Philip's thoughts on the subject because the role of a university is precisely to bring together, in this case at least, the many disciplines which would, can contribute to the study of privacy. And um, 30, when, I mean, when I look at it, 30 years ago, my, my, my first book on the subject and where we got to, um, that this perhaps was one of the greatest um, differences that his, this has made. Because 30 years ago, people were asking me, or my friends were openly asking, are you crazy, Joe? I don't know about the faculty of law here, maybe full of saints. But the ones where I work in on other parts of the planet are some of the most conservative places that you can think of. So to study not law, but computers and law, and when I was doing that between 1979 and 1986, was the epitome of professional folly. And, uh, and yes, so today it's nice to be here, nice to be greeted. Um, but if anybody wants any free consultancy about what it's like to go from heretic to prophet to guru, you, know, you have my number. Um, it's, it's been an interesting journey, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and now, finally, privacy is flavor of the month. Um, and those, you know, those of us who are passionate about the subject, who try to be, who are passionate yet, like Philip Leith, are scientists. Which is why I've spent most of my life looking at an evidence base. Which is why all the projects that I was referring to previously are there in search of an evidence base for the policy we would like to develop about privacy. Um, that's why one of the most interesting lessons that I've taken away from the last 30 years is that no one single discipline alone can provide the whole picture or indeed a true picture of a subject as complex as privacy. And instead, many different disciplines may have something important to say, some valuable insight about privacy, and it is only if and when you take all these different viewpoints and put them together that you can hope to get the complete picture, one which has breadth as well as detail and depth. And in fact, this is what I was trying to do, and this is the book that Daniel was referring to last, which came out last year, incidentally, before I knew that I was going to be hit by this new part-time job, which is threatening to take over my life, the UN Rapporteur for Privacy. Um, and in fact, um, that's the title, yes, but really uh, the introduction would probably give you an insight into this multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary approach. You know, there's more than one way to cook an egg. And you can, of course, go to one of our many sites and look at the projects that we have listed on that site to show you how we're trying to get at different ways of working with industry working with SMEs, working with the largest companies on the planet, yet at the same time also working with academics and trying to devise privacy by design templates.
Um, and you might be asking, you know, after 30 years, um, is my quest for privacy over? No, it's not. Uh, we have so much work to do, which is consolation to myself. Uh, we have so much work left to do that I could probably go through a few more lifetimes. But here's a glimpse into the field work that we're doing for some of the uh, some of the work in order to gain a better understanding into privacy. And this is where I need to call back the spirit of Bill Stanner, because um, a lot of this work is designed using Stanner's insights. Um, as we're coming down today, uh, uh, one of the delightful and very professional and helpful colleagues from the office of the Australian Information Commissioner was telling me, Joe, are you okay with the small plane? I said, really? I mean, if you think that's a small plane, you know, I've been on the wings of love, man. <laughs> no kidding. The wings of love is written on that plane, right? <laughs> um, and this is the kind of thing I have to get on if I want to go into the jungles of Borneo, where I've been carrying some fieldwork for the past several years. Um, just imagine, so if you think that you had to lengthen the, the runway in Canberra, think again. Think of 1967 and an RAF plane parachuting. Parachuting, there was no other way to get it. A bulldozer into the jungle to clear the airstrip. The airstrips are so short that at least twice over the past three years, the plane has overshot the airstrip while on the airstrip. So, you know, happily, the planes were about to be scrapped, and now they have the latest version of the Otter, which is the same size. It looks like it a lot, but it's got more modern avionics. But what happens after you've changed three planes and three airports and finally got yourself onto an airstrip in the jungle, is that you must then go up the rapids the wrong way for two hours until you get to some of the most delightful places with some very nice people um, and eventually go across uh, a bridge, a rope bridge, and get to, in this case, Long Lamai. And it's there where, when you start asking the questions using instruments which have been put together by my team of anthropologists, cognitive psychologists, myself, of course, um, with Stanner's notes there, and you would be pleased to know that the ethical guidelines for the projects are drawn almost 100% from the guidelines developed here in Australia for research in indigenous communities. Um, but you will notice one thing, which is part of the experiment there. Can somebody see the satellite dish over there? Yep. They've got the internet. It's weak, but it works. And one of the interesting things, of course, and I'm going to take you there in a minute, is to try to understand the value, but also the impact that these little toys are having on lives and values in indigenous societies. Um, yeah, that's part of the part of the team, and you know, 
when we're not wearing suits. Um, but let me take you back a few more years. Now, I'm going back eight years now, 2008, 2011, during the campaigns I led in, in East Africa, and especially Kenya in this case. And when, in these projects, the Papakpachit projects, which are still ongoing, um, this is a labor of love, ladies and gentlemen. Don't hold your breath until this book comes out. But um, it's called Privacy and Personality Across Cultures, which completely by coincidence is what Daniel was asking me. He didn't know about this. You know, he hasn't seen these slides before. Um, but it's something he was asking me about earlier on this afternoon. When we're looking at the objectives of the interview, the, the consent forms, the instructions, the guidelines, the ethical guidelines, so on and so forth, so much of this, I hope, I can only hope, if you think it's good, say thank you to Bill Stanner, because so much of it is also inspired by him. Um, so this is what it looks like when you're asking for consent um, from the oldest tribe of hunter-gatherers in Kenya. They're called the Ogek. They speak Ogek, so I need my good friend Emmanuel to help translate uh, into Ogek. And I should share a little anecdote here, if you'll permit me. If you think privacy is dead, you haven't begun to travel or meet people. Do you know what happened here? So. I, sh I should tell you, I, should, I was reminded of this, this particular incident um, when last week I was in doing privacy in New Zealand. And you know that in New Zealand, part of the welcome in the Maori tradition also consists of song and exchanges of speeches, etc. They have a specific name for it. I was so relieved that it wasn't like in these villages in Africa. Because in some of these, you have to dance your way in. And ladies and gentlemen, you haven't seen me dancing. <sighs> but the real story here, of course, is that the discussion which arose here, this is July 2010. The discussion which arose here, and I had to step back. I pulled my team back for an hour before so that we could let the discussion we had ignited take place and then go back and ask for collective permission. And notice I'm talking about collective permission and collective privacy and eventually individual privacy. What had happened in July 2010 is that the government of Kenya had issued an edict requiring everybody to register the SIM card on their mobile phone. No surprises, ladies and gentlemen, in the name of security. In 30 years, this was probably the most instructive, the most interesting experience I ever had. To see people the few of them there who actually owned a mobile phone had to walk between 20 and 35 kilometers to charge the mobile phone. To see them have a discussion as to whether it is right, these are people who still hunt with bows and arrows, never mind the European clothes. 
right? To see people discuss whether it is right to surrender the anonymity by registering for a phone SIM card. And it's a pity that I don't have that much time this evening to take you into more details about some of the findings here. Um, we, we had, uh, for ethical reasons, at first decided not to ask them, do you own a mobile phone or not? But during this interview, this was particularly interesting, his, a phone rang and it was his. So then we asked him, is it okay if we ask you about phones? And some of the really interesting things that we found about phones is, um, I'll tell you about a couple of things in a minute, the slides, but the only finding I'll share here, which is really interesting, that in the middle of the forest, in a place where I was the first white man they ever saw in their lives, and you have to believe me, ladies and gentlemen, after a few days in the sun, I am no longer white. Um, the people who were using mobile phones had actually developed a mobile phone etiquette where they moved away from others to speak on the phone. I wonder who told them that. Because indeed, when you see, when you see the way, and we were trying to do something, and this, what you're seeing now, is taken directly from my being influenced by Stanner. In his, you have to remember that Bill Stanner only wrote one. If you know of another one, please tell me. He only wrote one very short piece about privacy. That's manuscript 400, and to the best of my knowledge, it was produced in or about 1977 for the Law Commission in 1977. And we don't know the exact use that he, the Commission made for it, but tomorrow I am meeting Michael Kirby, and he doesn't know it yet, but it's one of my questions for him. Because um, if anybody should know, perhaps Michael Kirby should. Um, but indeed, one of the things that the incredibly, you know, insights that Bill Stanner gives, which is something which is normal in anthropological circles, because I found exactly the same approach 20 years, 30 years previously in anthropological studies being carried out in the Amazon, was the simple question which might normally evade those of us who are not anthropologists, but in the 200 languages out of the 400 peoples that the Aborigines had before white man arrived in 1788. Do any of them have a word for privacy? Or a concept like privacy? The answer incidentally is no, but we'll see that in a minute. So instead, we're searching here for concepts of how they use space. And as a good ecologist, I thought up of a good use for our consent form. Flip the consent form around and draw the house you live in. 
And this is what we did. Going from village to village, sub-tribe to sub-tribe, asking them the questions, including now after interviewing number five, the ones about the mobile phone, do you own a mobile phone, how do you use it, what do you use it for, etc. And wherever we were, you're going to see people drawing their house, drawing their space, in order to see what they consider to be inviolable inside their physical space. Because Tanner was a very astute observer of the way that people use space. There are some anthropologists in the room, so I have to be careful how to speak. But as many anthropological studies that you read, very few of them actually talk about privacy. Very few of them. A number of them talk about sex. Some of them seem also almost obsessed with sex. Um, perhaps for good reason. But when it comes to privacy, which is something quite related to sex, amongst other things, um, there isn't such a, a, a clean focus on the subject. Of course, um, this is Chirono, this is my, my gender officer in the team, um, talking to the chief's mother here. Um, there are occupational hazards, of course, in, uh, just before, beco before you get really keen to come and join the teams when we go across, you know. So life in Kenya is cheap. Drivers have their own code. This is what happened to my 4x4. I think it's a rhombus now. It's no longer for those of us who still take an interest in mathematics and shapes. Um, this is what happened. I was, not, I was going into a, a petrol station at that moment in time, and I assure you of my innocence. Of course, when we started off on our, um, in our work in Kenya, nobody told me what happens every time at 3 o'clock in the afternoon when the heavens open. Um, and even if you have military-grade vehicles, Four by fours, etc. This was one of this was a four by four, but um, it's useless having a winch in front because if there's no tree to which you can tie your winch cable. Um, I, I got out of that incidentally. Uh, I was lucky. I was giving a lift to the local politician. It was not election time, ladies and gentlemen, and the local politician actually knew of a farmer with an old but trusty tractor three miles away, and he plowed through the fields to get me the farmer. They blew the tires, they inflated the tires, came back, and we, we dug our way out of there, only to find that I also had a puncture, so on and so forth. But let me not dwell on that and get back to the subject. Um, we, here is the analysis. I don't have time to go into the analysis today, but this was the, this was the percentage. Let me stop on just two slides. Um, does the respondent wish to keep certain events private? As you can see, uh, everybody except one and the age there was a very young person wanted, had something to keep private. We um, also uh, are analyzing events requiring privacy. We are looking at things differentiating by gender. We're looking at mobile phone ownership by gender, years of mobile phone ownership. Um, does the respondent move away during a phone call? Right? 
Um, these were not, incidentally, um, structured questions. This was that most pesky of questionnaires, an unstructured one, where you have to go through every answer and come out with a categorization later, just to make sure you're not losing anything. Um, back to time, place, and space, and see how um, this is the, the, the book. There aren't many books, actually, about uh, the architecture of Australia. This is one which comes from 2007. Originally, I think, partially 2001. Um, fascinating insight into the way that indigenous cultures use space. But if you go to Martin's, I suspect a number of you are familiar with the work of John Hilary Martin, who edited a later edition of, um, of uh, Stanner's works. Um, he, he picked up, of course, the traditional observation that a traditional Aboriginal camp as a community without walls, but he then went on to comment on the way that social separation is achieved. There may be no walls, but who can address whom? What register of language should be used? The manner in which a person or a group should approach another's fire? How the camp itself should be set out? And this is, uh, Martin has commented that these are not matters of accident, but expressions of social engineering. And he followed up Stanner's comments that the plan of an Aboriginal camp was not set out at random. It followed the design of a community's dreaming. And people who should not meet or who should not converse socially too much were put on opposite sides of the camp. The arrangements for fires, which kept space between in-laws, but drew the Egypt family together. And this is where um, Stanner correctly identified, in my view, that Aborigines, ourselves, together we have a common ground in the understanding of and the need for privacy. And because if you look carefully um, at what uh, is very common in most Aboriginal people, there is this need to preserve the essential self <clears throat> by being able to habitually avoid unwanted intrusions into the living space or eavesdropping on their intimate conversations. And the gratuitous disparagement by casual strangers of the treasury of cultural values. And other lessons which Martin draws from Stanner have influenced my teams and myself over the past several years. Um, this comment, Europeans and others constantly misrepresented Aboriginal institutions in a belittling way. At times, Aboriginal institutions were interpreted with ulterior motives, and the root for Stanners, um, these were the precise words, his observations came primarily from long experience with administrators, academicians, and plain ordinary citizens who too often dishonored needs and privacy rights in their dealings with Aboriginal peoples in the Northern Territories. And the insights, I'll come back to this in a minute, but the insights that Stanner gave us, the one on language, for example, right? The Aborigines do not appear to have had in their languages any abstract concept or any isolated behavior pattern in their culture. 
which exactly duplicated what we mean by privacy or its pursuit. But, and I'm quoting directly from Stanner here, if an intense dislike of intrusion or crowding by others, of public disparagement and embarrassment, cause for shame. And ladies and gentlemen, let's stop for a minute and go back to what I was reminding you about Article 12 of the fundament of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights and Article 17 of the International Covenant on Political and Civil Rights, which we have today. And Article 12 is not only about privacy, but it's also about reputation. And look at reputation, look at what Stanner is talking about here, about reputation. Public disparagement and embarrassment cause for shame. And misappropriation and misuse of precious symbols of their identity as individuals or as groups. That comes, if this comes somewhere, <coughs> Stanner says, near the core of our notion of privacy, then the Aborigines share much in common with us. Stanner was spot on when commenting on the simplistic views of white man. And I don't have time to run all of the many insights that Stanner provided in this seminal paper, but he showed the stupidity of white man. Well, because he showed that what are the common um, descriptions used by white men in this case, by Europeans, that a traditional camp, no, Aborigines don't have the concept of privacy because a traditional camp could be seen through from end to end. Rudimentary shelters or huts were so disposed that anyone could see almost everything that anyone else did, at least until the fires died down at night. The society was one without walls, a community of the eye, in the translation from several Aboriginal languages, in which people did apparently live almost entirely in public view. If a person went away solitarily or in an apparently secretive way, it invited attention, gossip, and speculation, which might later harden into suspicion or accusation of mischief-making or black magic. Um, other confusing features for white men were the sharing of food and possessions, division of labor, the arrangement of domestic life, so on and so forth. But in fact, Stanner's incredibly useful insight here was the easy to miss a less visible reality. And this is typical, um, typical Stanner here. The community of the eye was thoroughly Nelsonian. And because, as he commented, anyone could see a camp from end to end and almost everything that anyone did. But it was thought offensively intrusive to notice, draw attention to, or even mention much that had happened. And the conditioning which took place was also commented on by Stanley. It was a matter of high shame to behave openly in ways that under ruling norms should happen only in seclusion. Example, the display of affection or intimacy between spouses, defecation, sexual intercourse. I, I'll, I'll draw this to a close, and I apologize if I'm running slightly over time. Um, but when we look at space and privacy, this is one of the key insights that Stanley left us with. An onlooker from another culture could easily miss the fact 
that the space filled by a camp was divided into zones or realms, each of which was declaratory of a right of persons or groups to enjoy a domain of individuality and comparative autonomy and to rebuff intruders. Each camp, for example, had a surround which was wholly unmarked, but through which a visitor, especially a comparative stranger, might not pass until invited. A visitor from another descent group, even from the same totem, might be expected to make his camp outside his hosts and in the direction of his own clan territory. I could go on space and privacy, so on and so forth. But let me come to my conclusion, which is what's the moral of the story, ladies and gentlemen? You didn't need Joe Kanatachi to come along and tell you that Bill Stanner was a great man. But what I'm here to remind you of is that perhaps now is the time to build up a bit more on the legacy that Bill Stanner has left us all. Because one of the things that I was <coughs> discussing yesterday in the business breakfast organized by the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner is that while Australia recognizes its international commitments, and here I'm referring specifically to its international commitments in, for example, the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights and Article 17 of that covenant, which recognizes the right to privacy of each individual. Um, and Australia already recognizes that it can do better. If you read all the reports from the Australian Law Reform Commission, you can see that there are several suggestions as to how things can be improved. But I'm here to encourage you to do something about it as soon as possible, because it is good for Australians, it's good for business, it's good for the world. And I was using yesterday this report from 2014, I could have used several others even from 2008 and beforehand, about series of invasions of privacy in the digital era. And the link that I'm making here is that Australia can lead in this place, in this sector, by also going back and obtaining insights and informing the debate through much better knowledge of the information ethics and the privacy neighboring behavior and rules which one sees in its indigenous communities. And in fact, let me skip this one, but let me come to this one. Um, if you look at the last report, these are taken verbatim, ladies and gentlemen, from the last ALRC discussion paper of 2014. And let's just go through them and, and conclude. Privacy also gives individuals greater freedom to pursue their cultural interests, free from undue interference from others. This freedom may be particularly important for some ethnic, religious, and cultural groups, such as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, who have particular cultural identity, knowledge, and customs that bear on the privacy interests of individuals within the group. And later on in the same report, paragraph 6.48, the culture and background of a plaintiff may also be relevant to whether he or she has a reasonable expectation of privacy. Some information may be considered to be more private in some cultures than in others. These expectations may be well known in the community. And finally, 
For example, the cultural expectations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and other cultural or ethnic groups may also be relevant in some cases to the reasonable expectation of privacy in the circumstances. Which is why what I'm saying, in fact, is that this is where, when I come to go Australia, what Australia should be doing next. I think that you have a huge opportunity. You are sitting on a gold mine, ladies and gentlemen. We are sitting on a gold mine. Um, a gold mine of 30,000 years of culture, which has bred complex information ethics, born in the dreaming, but here with us today. And indeed, that culture may be something which helps Australia lead in at least two ways. One, continue building up the research methodology in collaboration with the various brothers, sisters that are with us in the Aboriginal communities, build up the rigorous research methodology which helps identify more precisely the privacy neighboring behavior and then go forward, ladies and gentlemen, and lead in taking that to other countries and helping other countries tap into their own indigenous cultures in order to find out much more about a subject which has been not explored very well. In many civilizations, many cultures, many countries, we look at the individual privacy, but far less attention has been paid to communal privacy, to the privacy of a community. And yet, when you think about it, um, you don't need to go into Aboriginal camps uh, to understand or a bit more about community privacy. Uh, come to the small villages of Italy, Sicily in the south, Malta, wherever you want, and you can see some very uh, interesting common traits that you see there. But thank you very much for your attention. You've been very patient with me, and I apologize for being slightly over time. Thank you once again. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.